as we continue in worship this evening, I invite you to turn with me, if you have a copy of the scriptures, to the prophecy of Jeremiah. That's the prophecy of Jeremiah in chapter 8. As I'm sure you, you know by now, our principal text is Matthew 25, but, but I want us to read just a few verses from this 8th chapter of Jeremiah. As in this text, you and I, we see, we see a scene that's not terribly different than the one we will find in our text tonight. In Jeremiah 8, you and I, we find the church, the visible, the professing people of God, making a staggering conclusion. Again, very much like the one we find in Matthew 25. And so, beloved, hear now the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with their strange vanities? The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Then if you would turn with me to Matthew 25 or turn over the sheet that you received there. Matthew 25 and we'll take up our reading there at verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish. Sorry, five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go ye rather uh, to them that sell and, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch, therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Amen. And may God bless us under his word this evening. Well, friend, as we've taken up Matthew 25 now for the past several nights, 
I, I won't make a long introduction. I'll say to you this evening, first of all, that, that tonight we leave, we leave the five characters that we focused most upon this week. This evening we conclude our time with the five foolish virgins. Uh, this is us leaving them entirely. Our final evening to focus on them. Now, if you haven't been with us, friend, these ones certainly are part of a broader parable that Christ has given to us in this text. I want you to recognize, as we said at the very start, that Christ gives this parable to us, first of all, in response to questions, questions of his disciples. What, what shall be the sign of your coming? What shall be the sign of the end? And Christ does give those signs. But, but then as you read through Matthew 24 and you come into our text this evening, you recognize that, that after he's given these signs, he urges a particular exhortation. His focus is not so much on the signs, and he presses not so much those signs upon his disciples as he does this basic principle that men and women in every generation are to make themselves ready for the final judgment. They are to make themselves ready for his coming, even if, friend, they themselves won't see it in their lifetime. All are called to preparation. And Christ urges that, you remember, in Matthew 24, at the end of that chapter, with two parables, and then you come into our 25th chapter, and he reinforces that with three others. We take up the first of those parables this evening. Now he says, in the very first verse of this text, that this parable is about the kingdom of heaven. And friend, what that is, is the visible church on earth. That is, the whole body of people who call themselves Christians. These are those who make a profession of faith. And he calls them ten virgins. And, and you remember, friend, this is significant because he's not here referring to the nominal professor. You know, the somebody who says, well, I'm, I'm a Christian, I've been a Christian for a while, but they don't live like it. No, these, these people are entirely different. These ones have a reputation for purity. These ones look like genuine believers. Now, as we come to our text this evening, which really we pick up here at verse 9, you'll remember that Christ has told us a number of things about these ten virgins. First of all, all of them slumbered and slept. Then, all of them had the same command. Go ye out to meet the bridegroom. And all of them stirred. All of them, all ten of them rose, and all ten of them trimmed their lamps. But, as we saw last evening, five of them, that is the five foolish, said this, To the wise, give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Now, friend, what you have here then, as we said last evening, is a picture of of somebody who has professed faith, somebody who has perhaps done all of the work one would expect of a good church member, somebody who has before the world seemingly been transformed and, and seemingly and genuinely believed the gospel. And we're told here that before the end, even these ones come to the conclusion that they weren't genuine at all. They weren't duly prepared for the end. They lacked genuine repentance, genuine faith. Well, our text this evening is the response of the wise to that statement by the foolish. It begins here in verse 9. The wise answered, saying, Not so, 
Lest there be not enough for us and you, but go ye rather to them that sell and buy for yourselves. Now the first thing I want you to notice here is that we are given a correction. The, the, the five wise go to the foolish and they say, first of all, and emphatically, not so. And the sense there is, is that this was a wrong response on the part of the foolish. They should not have turned to them. They give them a brief correction. And I want you to notice this. They recognize, too, that this request really is from selfish ends. We can't forget that as we think about the response of the wise. What the foolish were asking for was enough oil so as to keep their lamps lit for a time. Even if it was to the detriment of the wise, and even if ultimately, as all ten of their lamps might have gone out, it was to the dishonor of both of the bride and the bridegroom. So here the wise check them as they ought to. Here they tell them it's not to be that way. But then they issue a command. And the command is go. Go by. Still while there is time. Do what you should have done in the very first place. Now friends, they go out and they buy. We're told this. Verses 10 and following. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And then just briefly afterward, they came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. I want you to notice the response of the bridegroom first of all. He says, I know you not. And again, if you were a first century hearer, if you were listening to this the first time it was spoken by the lips of the Savior, you would have recognized what Christ was depicting. It's the wee hours here of the morning. It's dark. And the bridegroom doesn't recognize these five characters who've shown up to the door. They are not known to him. And what I want you to notice, though, friend, as we extrapolate from there, we recognize here that Christ underpins the idea or lays before us more clearly that the problem with the foolish was that their preparations were not right and were attempted far too late. These five foolish would then end up utterly disappointed in the end. That's how this parable closes. Now, friend, I want you to recognize two things that's quite unique about this text. If you compare this parable with the, pre, the two preceding, you'll recognize that that the regret that you find in the five foolish virgins in our text comes before the end. We said that last evening. Here, the, the, the false Christian, at the sound of the one who announces the bridegroom's coming, becomes convinced that they're not truly converted. That is, they're not a genuine Christian. And they, they express, even in that moment, some regret. They, they, they confess the wisdom of, of the ones who were their companions, who had been duly prepared. That regret comes before the end. But the second uniqueness with our text is that at the end as well, there's disappointment expressed. You see, these ones very patently longed to be part of the feast in some way. They had some desire 
to gain injury. When you look at the parable of the evil servant, when you look at the one of the good man of the house, both of those from chapter 24, they're disappointed after the end. These ones are disappointed at the moment they come to the door. A friend, if we hold all of those things together, and we remember what we've said up to this point, that here the Lord is giving us a picture of the final judgment, and he's giving us a picture of many who have professed faith but are false. These several verses teach us that then the false Christian will be disappointed in the end. The false Christian will be disappointed in the end. And I want us to look at that under two headings. I want us to look at, first of all, the reply that these these foolish virgins receive. And then I want us to look at the request that these foolish ones make of Christ at the end. So first of all, take verse 8. As you notice here, the wise virgins, as we said already, correct them. They say, not so. They are not to give of their oil, of their store to them, lest, as they said, All of the lamps go out, there being not enough for all. Now, friend, I want you to notice here, first of all, our translators have added the words not so, and for good reason. That's the force, the emphasis of the text. This is a denial. And it is there to check the error of the five foolish virgins. But I want you to notice, friend, this is not uncharitable. I think at first brush we could read it that way. We could read it as though that these ones were being quite harsh with their companions. But if you, again, were, were listening to this in the first century, you would recognize there was no harshness, uh, no cruelty behind this reply. First of all, I want you to recognize that, that these five foolish still have not calculated the kind of preparation that was required. What I mean by that is they think that they can draw down, they can have, as it were, the preparation made by the five five wise, and that that would be sufficient. That half the preparation that the, the, the wise made would be sufficient. They don't get it. And here, here the wise recognize that, and they correct them. No, the kind of preparation that they engaged in was necessary. And the point is, they're saying of themselves, they weren't overprepared. They did not have a surplus. And then I want you to notice this. The command as well is certainly reasonable. They say, go buy for yourselves. In other words, go get oil at the usual place. Now friend, if we hold all of these elements together, what we find here is that in this reply, the five wise turn to the foolish. And they say, your understanding of preparation, true preparation, is woefully inadequate. And on the other hand, they urge them to go to the place where true faith and true repentance is ordinarily to be found. Now, for our purposes, we need to ask a basic question. Where is that place? Well, what does this look like, this, this market where these five foolish are directed? Well, friend, the answer to that is is really given to us right throughout the scriptures to what we refer to as the means of grace. And so what you have in this text, before the end, you have, as it were, the foolish virgins instructed that first of all, their ideas of preparation are poor. 
And secondly, that if they want to be duly prepared, they need to find themselves under the means of grace. And so, friend, false Christians here must be directed to an earnest use of the means of grace. And I want you to see this in two ways. I want you to see this, first of all, how here the wise virgins enforce this command. I want you to notice that here they urge them, urge them, first of all, to leave their false views of adequate preparation. Again, there's a correction that's given here. Here, the wise virgins say they don't have a surplus of oil. They have enough for themselves to get by. And friend, I want you to notice here that what you and I are supposed to see is the genuine Christian recognizing that they have sufficient grace, but they do not have, they do not have works of super-irrigation. They, they don't have a surplus, as it were, of grace that they can distribute to others. No, friend, in fact, the scriptures are quite clear, and we'll see this on the Lord's Day, God willing. But the true Christian looks at the work of grace within and rejoices to see God's handiwork there. But, but he recognizes, as Peter says, that the righteous are scarcely saved. He has grace, yes, and he's assured that that will continue. But, but friend, he knows this. He knows, that, he knows that a small, a meager measure of grace is insufficient. And he also knows that he has just enough to overcome He has just enough holy zeal, nothing more than what is required. A friend, if we hold that in front of us, then we see here how this text is easily applied to the false believer. The false believer in this text is one who thinks still that one need not be so prepared. One need not have that deep work of grace, or that that work of grace must be so deep as it really is. No, friend, they're content with a measure of righteousness, a measure of seeming godliness. Friend, in this text, you and I are also supposed to discern very clearly that, that this is how the false Christian does look at a work of grace. When the true Christian looks at the work of regeneration within, he Yes, he sees the work of God begun, but he sees so much that needs to continue. And he knows that if the, if the hand of God is not at work, that work will be extinguished. It must always be fueled by the Spirit of God. Friend, the false Christian is content if he has some kinds of religious experiences, if he has some stirring, as it were, under the means of grace, if he has some new thoughts, new habits, new companions, he's contented in that. He doesn't see, friend, that due preparation for the end is something far deeper. My friend, as we look at this text as well, we're told here that in response to this, the the foolish virgins are to run to the place where ordinarily they would find this oil. Ordinarily, where souls are duly prepared. And as I said to you already, these are the means of grace. Now, friend, that's the gospel market. That really is the place where, the, where souls, lost and needy souls, find the oil that is required. That's where they truly are prepared for the end. 
And first of all, the scriptures hold out for us what, what some of those means are. And very clearly, principally, the, the main ordinance that God has established for, for converting souls is the preaching of God's word. I'll just read to you two texts. It pleads God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. It's by preaching, says the apostle, that ordinarily souls are saved. In Romans 10, how shall they believe in whom whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Friend, this is so widely neglected in our generation. In our generation, the, the greatest desire, it seems, among so many people in the church is to shorten sermons and, and, to, and to shorten the preaching of God's word in general. But friend, this is the gospel market. The, the word of God tells us that this is the principle, ordinary means that God employs to duly prepare souls for the end. But we can go further. Friend, the scriptures teach us, of course, that the scriptures themselves read in private, meditated on in private, these two are able to make souls wise unto salvation. And we can go from there, friend, to prayer and to fasting, to Christian fellowship and all of those other means that are given to us in the Word of God. All of those you and I are supposed to see as really preparation grounds, as it were the marketplace by which souls are made ready for the end. A friend, if that's the case... How should they be used? Note note what we just saw before. That the wise virgins remind the foolish that, that they still have a wrong view of what true preparation is. And then afterward, they drive them to the marketplace. The point is that when you go to the marketplace, you, you need to go there in earnest and for abundant grace. When you make use of the means of grace, you need to go there mindful that you don't need, as it were, buckets, but you need oceans of mercy. In other words, friend, you are to go to those places where God prepares souls importunately, waiting there in earnest for God to do a great work. And that really is what underlies our text this evening. The first element is, is that, again, the false Christian thinks so, so little of a genuine work of grace. And secondly, that, that they so listlessly go to the market themselves. My friend, that brings us to our second and our final point this evening. If that's the reply these virgins receive, what about the request that we see them make in verse 11? You'll note here that they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. Now, as we look at this text, again, friend, it would be customary for, for any, anyone who is there to, to recognize the situation. Anyone who is, who is familiar with the wedding ceremony as we see it in this text would recognize that these five virgins should be desperate. They should, in other words, be knocking hard on that door. It was their station to be with the bride. It was their calling to be present, and they were derelict. So now you would expect them to do precisely what they do here. Now they become, now they become loud. Now they become earnest. And in in their request, you find two things. You find, first of all, an acknowledgement. An acknowledgement of who the bridegroom is. They call him Lord. 
Friend, that's a significant element of this text that we can't overlook. They acknowledge who he is. And secondly, friend, what you see here is, is something of a, of a confession of their own sense of their sincerity. It comes in the fact that it's repeated twice, Lord, Lord. It's an expression of desire, but friend, you should also see here, it's as though they are saying, I'm willing to submit. I acknowledge you as Lord now. And friend, what you find in this is that they are those who are professing even to the end, that they were those who were duly submitted, who duly acknowledged his lordship. Friend, all of this indicates again the false believer. The false believer at the end, maintaining even to the end what they thought was true, that they were indeed submitted to Christ, that they had a real and a sincere desire for him. Friend, in all of this, they're disappointed. What this text shows us is that many false Christians will maintain their hypocrisy to the end. You see this directly earlier in Matthew's Gospel. Christ says this, he says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we, and, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. That's Matthew 7, 22. And friend, we could quickly look over that, but I want you to recognize what the Lord is saying there. He is not there referring to his enemies or those who were his stated enemies, his avowed and, and public opponents. That's not who he's talking about there. Who is he referring to? They describe themselves. They say, first of all, there are those who prophesied. That is, they are those who preached in his name. Then, secondly, they describe themselves as those who have cast out devils. They were, an, they were an instrument for reformation, an instrument for great things in the hand of God. And I want you to notice that Christ disputes none of that. None of that in Matthew 7. What he disputes is what they begin with. They begin with the asseveration, Lord, Lord. He says, no, you are workers of iniquity and I never knew you. Friend, that's a parallel to our text this evening. These virgins came professing submission, seeming submission to the bridegroom. They came expressing some, some desire to be there at the feast. But look at their ill preparation. Where was their concern for the bridegroom when they were ill-prepared such that their lamps would go out? Where, where, friend, was that earnest desire to be part of the feast when they slumbered with undue preparation? You see, friend, what this text shows us is the very self-same thing Matthew 7 does. That at the end, at the end, There will be those who are self-deluded, who thought, who thought that they were something they weren't. My friend, what we see here too is that not only only are they self-deluded with regard to their own works, but they're self-deluded with regard to their own desires. I want you to notice in this text there is a sense that these virgins are portrayed as, as being desirous, to come into the feast, and we understand that. But, but the question you and I have to ask is, how, how could a false Christian that's depicted here, 
have, have desires after Christ. Is that possible? Well, friend, there is in the scriptures a kind of mercenary love. Christ describes it for us in Luke 6. He says, there are sinners who love those that love them. And friend, applied to God, that's very simply easily done. There are some who have desires after Christ, not for his sake, but because of the benefits they perceive he might give them. There are some who might have a desire after heaven, but not for Christ's sake. Not, not because they love God, but because they're afraid of the flames of hell. And friend, Christ says that that kind of love, even the unregenerate can exercise. Even the five foolish virgins, in some sense, can desire entry into the feast. The question that comes from this text then is, friend, what is the basis, the ground of our desire? This is what separates the foolish from the wise. In this regard, friend, they are distinguished because the wise, the wise have chosen the bride, the bridegroom primarily, have loved him. Do we love the gifts or the giver more? Well, friend, as we close this evening, I want us to take up just for a moment the questions of examination that come to us from this text. And I would like to return briefly to what we said before with regard to to how the foolish looked at preparation. If you remember that preparation in the scriptures here is is genuine repentance and faith, then, then what do we make of the foolish virgins, their miscalculations? Well, friend, I want you to remember that they went out and they trimmed their lamps as well. They took their lamps as well. They went out, in a sense, to meet the bridegroom too. So there was a seeming preparation on their part. But what you notice in this text is these ones were contented with a superficial work of grace. That is, they were were contented with something that was purely external. They didn't actually make them new creatures in Christ Jesus. They were those, as Hebrews 6 describes, who tasted of the heavenly gift, but But friend, their appetites weren't changed. They they knew something of the external motions of God's spirit, but not of that inward, real, and lasting change. Friend, as we look at this text, you find here a question for you and for me, and that is, is this us? You see, at the end of the age, there will be many who think that the work of regeneration, that is, genuine repentance and faith, that that those, those works were not so profound, were not so great as in fact they were. And at the end of the age, they'll be disappointed. They'll be surprised to see that that's what the new creature really looks like. Friend, that question ought to be with us this evening. We ought to ask, has that real work than done in me, in which I have a new appetite for the God whom I once hated, in which I have real longings to overcome sin because I see its sinfulness and because I love God? Do I have any experience 
Even now, friend, that that work of grace within is certainly not of my own making. You see, in all of those questions, friend, we're getting to the bottom of our own text this evening. The foolish virgins were contented with slight, superficial preparations because they didn't think that what was really required was so deep and was so lasting. But secondly, friend, there is something else in this text that we can't miss. And that is that in this passage, you find, you find here the wise here descrying any rest in their own preparations, as though their preparations were sufficient of themselves. And what I mean by that is this. They recognize they don't have a superfluous amount of, of oil. They don't, they don't think that they have over-prepared in any way. They don't think, in other words, friend, that their preparation of itself is as significant as perhaps the foolish thought. And friend, this is such an important distinction because it's the very one Christ intimates at the end of chapter 25. Verses 31 to 46, the Lord there reminds us that at the last day, there will be a separation from the true and the false. But you'll remember that in that portion of Matthew 25, Christ narrates the discussion so that that there were hypocrites who when Christ said you did not do as you ought to have done, they said, when did we not? In other words, they said, we've done all that was necessary. Surely, surely we have done our duty. They thought much of their works. But do you remember, do you remember then when Christ turns to the truly godly, to the converted? He says, you have done this, that, and the third thing that I required of you. They say, Lord, when have we done that? One of the most important elements of that text is the idea that one of the marks, friend, of a real work of grace is that though, friend, the believer is fruitful, he doesn't rest in his fruit. His hope isn't lodged in his fruitfulness. He doesn't think his preparation, as it were, is over-preparation or meritorious on its own. No, friend, it can't merit anything. His hope is lodged only in Christ. What this text also, friend, reminds us is that we need to be mindful. That here Christ is urging us, he's urging us now to, to lay hold only of him. Friend, he does that in so many ways, but allow me as we close just to make this, this point clear. In the 13th verse, Christ leaves this scene and he says, watch, therefore. Watch, therefore. If we've listened to this text aright, if we've seen and we've heard the foolish virgins as we ought to have, friend, what you and I are to see here is that these ones, they rested in all kinds of things. But they were not truly watchful because at last they didn't rest in Christ. Friend, I know that perhaps is a simple point, but it's the very one that Christ iterates time and again, that this is the only due preparation for the end. This is it. My friend, as we close, I want to address, first of all, the poor doubting Christian. Friend, if, if you've sat under this text, 
and you found these themes searching, uh, certainly you ought to, and it's a good thing for us to be searched by such a text. But I also want you to recognize, friend, that the word of God gives us these warnings, even to the poor, doubting believer, because it is to remind us, friend, that, that we are we are to find Christ alone sufficient. The righteous are scarcely saved. We are called to be those who overcome the world. We're to have a holy zeal, but only because we stand in Christ. And so, friend, if you have been searched by this text, allow, friend, this text to drive you away from false rest so that you rest only in him. He only, friend, duly prepares his people. David Dixon on his deathbed put it this way. This is what true preparation looks like, and this is what the Christian should be driven to. He says, I've taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds. I've cast them together in a heap before the Lord and have fled from both to Jesus Christ. And in him I have sweet peace. And that's what true preparation looks like. That's what it is really to have the oil and your vessels to be lodged only in him. And so, friend, that is the final exhortation this evening. Run to him. Friend, the time is short. Even if the Lord tarries for millennia longer, you and I in just a few short decades will all be off the stage of this world. And what this parable reminds us is one day, friend, all of us will see All of us will see the wise separated from the foolish. And in that moment, friend, you and I will see each other. You and I will see and see faces, hear voices familiar to us. As the truth of this text is played out before our eyes. This is the time of preparation. That is the time of disappointment for the foolish. Make, friend, your calling and election sure. Amen.